the desire for transformation is prevalent. It is a universal human phenomenon. We all want to change, improve, uh, become better people. I did an Amazon book search on the word transform, which yielded over 10,000 results with titles such as transform, dramatically improve your career, business, relationships, and life one simple step at a time or how to transform your life, a blissful journey, 10 lessons to transform your marriage, transform your thinking, transform your life, radically change your thoughts, your world, and your destiny. The list went on and on. See, we humans are deeply aware of our need to move towards wholeness. We are aware that we are broken and we need to move towards wholeness. Today in the church's calendar, we celebrate Transfiguration Sunday. Transfiguration being a word that has much to do with transformation. And so it's entirely fitting that today we talk about the role of transformation in the Christian life. And what we are going to see as we explore God's word today is how God transforms followers of Jesus. Many of us have heard this story before about Jesus going up in the mountain, but let's put fresh eyes on, fresh lenses, and go and look at this passage for just a moment. So what's happening The context is this. Jesus has just told his disciples that he is going to the cross, that he is going to die. He is going to be arrested. He's going to be rejected by the leaders of his own religious community, and he is going to be crucified and die, and then he is going to be raised three days later. That's the context, and it's actually very important for what happens with the mountaintop. So Peter, James, and John are taken up to witness something that will change their lives that will strengthen and encourage them for the days to come. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that's the reason Jesus did it, but I think it is. And I think that there's evidence that Peter, James, and John were all strengthened by the vision that they see of Jesus when when he takes them to the mountaintop. Now, so they go up the mountain, and this change begins to happen. It tells us Peter and James and John, as usual, are kind of sleepy. I mean, wouldn't you be if you were following Jesus around and all that he did did, uh, seemed like he was on a 24-7 ministry schedule? And they're sleepy, but they stay awake. And so they get to experience this transfiguration that Jesus' clothes become dazzling white. The word in Greek means like like being bleached by something. And his face changes in appearance. There's a, there's a glow of sorts to it. Now, of course, they were scrambling at this point to get their phones out and snap a picture because they they thought we have to get this on Instagram immediately because this has got to be unprecedented. (laughs) No, Moses and Elijah suddenly appear beside Jesus. Now, there's been all kinds of uh, theories that Bible scholars have come up with. What does this mean? Why do Moses and Elijah appear beside Jesus? Is it um, that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets and Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets? Or is it just that Moses and Elijah were pretty big deals and so to have them beside Jesus at the center shows us that he's a bigger deal? Well, maybe all of that's somewhat true. But I think actually the reason that Moses and Elijah appear is for Peter, James, and John's sake. It's for them to see and to be more affirmed in their faith that the work that Jesus is doing is a continuation of what the work of the God of Israel, 
that the God of Israel was doing through Moses and all of the prophets and through his people. There is continuity. That's the, that's the purpose of the revelation, that there would be a visible continuity between the God who is at work and what we call the Old Testament scriptures. And this is this, this is the God who takes on flesh and completes his work in Jesus. Okay. That was kind of like a little bonus for you. Just a little point about the text. <clears throat> now, so we've got this glory shining in the face of Jesus it says this while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling dazzling white. So we've got this glory shining. So whatever is being talked about or whatever is going to be discussed in this moment is probably going to have an important connection to Jesus's glory. Wouldn't you think? Often God re- reveals something supernatural and, and beautiful and, and of great splendor. And then a word comes along that in uh, the, the splendor and the glory of the event uh, affirms that the word is, is something powerful to be taken uh, very seriously. So what's the word that is spoken? Well, he tells us, he says this, uh, suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They're just chumming it up, right? Moses and Elijah from a thousand years ago, suddenly they're there. So here's what's happening. The, the God's realm, right? Remember heaven? It's not like a place we like go to when we die up in the clouds. It's God's realm and it's shining through in the earthly atmosphere. And so they can, they are able to see these heavenly beings who have, are already in fellowship with God. So he's talking to Moses and Elijah and says, they appeared in glory. Keep that in your mind. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's what they're speaking about. His departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay. Why? What's, what's important about that? What is this all about? The word departure in Greek, and it's just a little Greek lesson, um, is exodon. Exodon. Can you say exodon? Say exodon. You can say it. Go ahead. Exodon. Okay. What do you think other word comes from exodon in the Bible? Exodus. Do you think there's uh, some significance to that? Yes. What's the significance? What's the significance? The exodus in the Old Testament was the central event of salvation for God's people. They were enslaved in bondage to the Egyptians. God heard their cry. He made them his people and he led them through the Red Sea by parting it supernaturally through his servant Moses. And they escaped what would have been a tragic defeat and death and a re-enslavement to the Egyptians who were hot on their tail. That, that was salvation for the Israelites. And so what is happening here in this passage of the transfiguration is we are being shown that Jesus is a new Moses who is leading a new exodus. Jesus is a new Moses who is leading a new exodus. Well, what is that exodus? They tell us that it's going to happen in Jerusalem. This in Luke's gospel, it's a turning point. As far as the structure of the gospel, it's a turning point because what's happening here is Jesus is going to ascend from this mountain and he's going to turn his face towards Jerusalem where he knows he's going to his death to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. It's a turning point in the gospel. Jesus is about to lead an exodus just as Moses had. He's about to lead a new exodus from sin and death. And those who follow him will be delivered from sin and death, from our enslavement, our bondage to sin and death. Amazing. 
because this stuff's called typology. Like we see something in the Old Testament and it's like kind of like a, a, a vague picture of something that comes to its fullness in the new. Jesus is the new Moses leading a new Exodus. You see, this is all in the context of talk about Jesus' death. His, his offering of self-giving love and suffering and sacrifice for the world. So Jesus' transfiguration into glory is deeply connected to his suffering and self-giving love. And we hear the voice of the Father say, This is my Son. Listen to him. That is, if you want transformation... If you too want to move toward glory, follow in his footsteps, obey him, be like him, trust in him. Now, here's a question. How does this happen? How does that happen for us? Is there like a book on Amazon we could type in the, is there a title we could look and uh, order and read it and figure out how to, how this transformation into glory stuff works? Uh, well, there's something better. There's a passage from second Corinthians chapter three today that we just heard from. You may have noticed that all the passages are very uh, significantly linked together today because we had a passage about Moses going up on the mountain and his face shining with glory after he encountered God uh, and came down and spoke to the Israelites. He was transfigured in a way. And then we have Jesus going up into the mountain as the new Moses who's transfigured. And now we have St. Paul in 2 Corinthians talking about the transfiguration or the transformation of people who turn their face to Jesus. So let's look at that for just a moment. In verse 15 of this chapter in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. This is a little bit lower down in the passage if you're following along. It says, indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their mind. Okay, what's he talking about? Uh, Israelites who are still trying to uh, achieve glory and transformation by following the law, who, who, who are refusing to turn to Jesus. He says, he's, what he's saying is when people try to achieve transformation into glory by keeping the Torah, the written law, there's a veil that keeps them from encountering true glory. Just like Moses had to have a veil over his face. See, that's so it is with our self-help obsessed culture. If you try to achieve transformation apart from Jesus, you'll always find yourself falling short. Why? Because when you try to follow God in your own power, you are actually powerless. You're really powerless to transform yourself. All of us. Real transformation, real wholeness is found only in knowing God and turning our face to the Lord. Let's look at what Paul says. He moves on and he says, this is the good news. But, he says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil that hides, that shields us from the glory of God is removed. How, what, why? What is, how, how is it that when we turn to Jesus, the veil that keeps us, uh, unable to bear God's glory, how is it removed? Because our hardness of heart is removed. Our inability to please God, just like the Israelites trying to follow the law, but always failing, our inability to please God is dealt with. How? How? Because Jesus died for us. Jesus died for our inability to please God, our inability to achieve transformation, to soften our hard hearts. He did what we could not do for ourselves. He was obedient on our behalf. He suffered the punishment for our sin on our behalf. Why? Because God so loved the world. You and me. 
Now, here's the result. Moving on, Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. See, true freedom. He's talking about true freedom. When you turn to Jesus and you receive the forgiveness of sins, you say, I'm free. I am free. You get a new heart. You walk in God's mercy. You walk in friendship with God. You walk in friendship with the Lord. You see, the spirit of the Lord that Paul mentions comes to live in you and transformation, transfiguration begins in that moment that you give yourself and turn to the Lord. Some of us are still trying to transform ourselves apart really from the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, you're not going to achieve true freedom until you turn that over to him and give yourself to the work that he wants to do in you. Now he goes on. This is so beautiful. Uh, This is towards the end of the passage. He says, and all of us, he's talking to fellow believers. He's writing to early Christians in the early church. All of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into the same image. That is the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. That's amazing. If you're walking with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit is active in your life, God is transforming you from one degree of glory to a higher degree of glory. And we'll see in just a minute what the, what the end goal of that is in ultimate glory. Because as we gaze at Jesus, as we follow him, we give everything to him, we can't help but be changed. Things will change when that happens. Now, there's this little line right here at the very end of this verse that Paul says that's very, very important for us in the rest of our time here. He says, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. This transformation of growing more and more like Jesus, of increasing in glory, is a work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. See, that's how God transforms his people. It is impossible apart from walking in the Holy Spirit to achieve this transformation. We cannot do it on our own. We cannot do it because we don't have power. We don't have the power from on high that we need to change, to become the people God intends us to be. So here's the question. How do we set up, set ourselves up for transformation? How do we set ourselves up so that the Holy Spirit will be an everyday reality for us, not just a notion in our head or a concept that we read about in the Bible? I I want to spend the next couple minutes just offering some practical advice. Um, this is, this is stuff that I've been going through in my personal life on a daily basis. And so I offer this practical advice to you with humility because I don't have all this figured out, but, but, but the Lord has been stirring some things in my heart. And I just want to share you, to share with you some things that the Lord has called me to be doing to actively set myself up for the power of his Holy Spirit to be at work transforming me. The first thing is this, tell God you want the Holy Spirit's fullness. It starts there. Lord, I want the Holy Spirit. I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Some, some of us, uh, some of us here today need to say, Lord, I haven't been walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and I want it. And I want you to begin that work in me again right now today. Start by telling him God wants to hear that. Jesus says as much. He says, who of you whose, whose child asks 
for bread would give them a stone. He says, your heavenly father is more eager to pour out his Holy Spirit on you than you are to make sure your, your, your little children are fed. That's amazing promise. That's an amazing promise. So, so it starts with crying out to God. He says through his prophet Jeremiah, the Lord says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, with fervency. You see, now, to be clear, God searches us out and he saves us. It, it is only by putting our faith in Jesus and the blood of Christ poured out for us that we are saved. And at that point, the Holy Spirit does become a part of our life. But this is about searching for God in a deeper way so that his power begins to flow in us in a new way and transforms us. It's kind of like leveling up, I guess you would call it, if you play video games. <clears throat> the second thing is this, ask difficult questions. This is the painful one. Because you actually have to get before the Lord and ask honest and difficult questions. What's a part of my life that's hindering this work that the Holy Spirit would like to be doing? Maybe God has been speaking to you for something specifically for a long time. And, it, and it's time to hand it over to him. Um, I want to tell you a story. Uh, most of you don't know this. But in October... Um, I made the decision to stop drinking all alcohol. And I loved craft beer, okay? IPAs, double IPAs, Belgians, all of that stuff. And I loved it. But uh, the Lord had kept laying it on my mind that it was an issue in my life because A, I have health problems that it was causing inflammation in my stomach. Uh, B, I have a, a, a very widespread history of alcoholism in my family, both on my mom and dad's side. Um, and... The other big thing that the Lord was really having me face up to was you have a disordered love for alcohol. And I wasn't, you know, pounding a fifth a day or anything like that. But it was just that I knew that I had a disordered love for alcohol. It was it was an idol for me. And I knew the Lord was saying, you, you can't just moderate yourself. You actually, it needs to be gone because I want to do work. And it's hindering that. And so... On October first, uh, the beginning of October last year, I said no, and I have not had a drop of alcohol save for the sacramental blood of Christ <laughs> since then. That's an exception. Friends, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now listen to what he says right after he says that. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you the advocate, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. You see, there's a correlation for Jesus between obedience and the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Obedience to God corresponds directly to his power at work in our lives. Likewise, disobedience corresponds directly to a lack of the Spirit's power. It doesn't change God's love for you, but it corresponds to a lack of the Spirit's power. Now, not because God is a taskmaster. And if you're getting that image in your head right now, of the guy who shakes his finger and has a big beard and he's really angry all the time, that is not why. See, Jesus, as he walked the earth and he healed people, he, when he healed people, he also gave them opportunities to manifest obedience to him. He says to the lame man, take up your mat and walk. He commands him and the man obeys and he's healed. He says to the man who he puts mud on his eyes to heal his blindness, he says, now go wash in the pool. Why does he do these extra steps? He's God. He could have just said, boom, done. He wants to op manufacture opportunities for these people to grow in their faith and their obedience and thus in their relationship with their heavenly father. That's what it's about. Obedience shows God that we trust him 
And it actually strengthens our relationship with him. It fosters intimacy. Okay. The third thing is this. Practice listening. This is extremely difficult in our hyper-distracted world. Extremely difficult. What I mean here specifically is, this has been my practice, you can you know, take it or leave it if it's helpful for you. I mean getting in front of the Lord on a daily basis with your Bible in your lap and with a pen and a notebook and coming to him with expectations and saying, what are you saying to me today, Lord? Uh, not what, what's going on historically here, that sort of stuff's important, but how are you going to speak through this to me so that my, I will experience transformation today? And, and for me, sometimes it's like little things. It just might be like, oh, I'm reminded that God is a God of mercy and love, that he forgives me, that his kindness leads to repentance. Or it's something big and very specific that deals with a particular life issue. But getting before him and giving him your ears is essential to hearing him. Jesus is always saying to people, what is he always saying to the crowds? He who has ears, let him hear. Right? We have to get before God and listen. The fourth and final thing is this, what I call consecration. I'm borrowing this idea from someone else. But to consecrate is to set something apart for a sacred purpose. And so consecration, what that looks like in the Christian life, is making specific sacrifices as a way of opening yourself up to the power of God. So, big one, we're moving into Lent, so this is, a, this is a very, very fitting time to start thinking about consecrating ourselves to the Lord in specific ways. So fasting is one of them, like literally fasting from eating, for whether it's for you start with fasting a meal or two meals or a day or a week if you're a real fasting ninja. <laughs> um, or it could be increasing the time and fervency of our prayer sessions with God. The Lord, I will tell you from personal experience, the Lord blesses that and it fosters deeper intimacy with him. And some of us have really dry prayer lives and the Lord wants to, he wants to pour rain on you and, and make your prayer life come alive. He wants that so bad for you. Um, it could be giving up a t- t- particular time to serve others in Jesus' name. It could be becoming more bold in your witness for Jesus. Some of us are, are ashamed of the name of Jesus. We're ashamed to pray in front of our, our um, co-workers and we're in front of our employees, in front of our family and friends, we're ashamed to say a prayer over our meal. And, and, and making a commitment to being bold in that area, you know what it does? It increases your faith and your trust in God. He can use that to reach other people. He can use that. Um, consecration is you, what you have to do. You have to halt. You have to put a halt to the regular rhythms in your life that feed your fleshly appetites. Okay? Because it makes room for the power of heaven to flow in. So if you've ever been in a funeral procession, um, driving out to the cemetery, you've got the purple flags on the car and everything. There's like um, an officer who holds up traffic, the regular flow of traffic, so that the funeral procession can come through, right? That's what, that's what consecration is like. You make specific sacrifices to God so that the power of the Holy Spirit can come in and have an avenue to get in and get your attention and do new things in your life. It pre, it's, it's what Jesus calls bearing fruit. It leads to bearing fruit, to him bearing fruit in us. Friends, uh, the Spirit's work of transformation is both painful and beautiful. It's both painful and beautiful. And we go through sometimes a process of transformation, of shedding old habits that, is hard, that are hard to let go of, of allowing God to make our hearts and minds renewed in his word and worship. But the promise is, and this is what we have to keep in mind, Coming to a close here. The promise is 
that we too will one day achieve the glory that God has in store for us. That is to be changed, as Paul says, into the same image of Jesus. First John chapter 3, verse 2, John, who, who knew Jesus, who is on the mountain with him, he wrote some letters, and they're in the New Testament. And he says this, uh, he pastored a church, and he said this to them. He's talking about Jesus. He says, when we see him, we shall be like him. That's glory. That's the glory and the transformation towards which God is calling you today. And, and it happens by opening your life to the work of the Holy Spirit. And some of us in this room today are scared of the work of the Holy Spirit, either because we've had a bad experience or we associate it with people who are excessive um, with their, with their uh, dedication to the Holy Spirit. And I want to say to you that you need not be afraid because when God's power comes, God's power is God's love. And people who experience powerful transformations in the Holy Spirit always attest that they feel overwhelmed by the love of God and the friendship of God. So don't be afraid to seek it. Ask for it. Ask yourself the difficult questions that you have to ask about what's going on in your life. Practice listening and consecrate yourself to the Lord in specific ways. He'll do something. He'll do something. I promise you that. And what it comes down to is your life lived in that power or is it just a stagnant, boring Christian life? Or is it lived in that power? God doesn't want any of us living boring lives. Friends, he doesn't want his church living boring lives. You see, your heavenly father is inviting you into the spirit-filled life. Not the spirit-have life, but the spirit-filled life. Will you take the hand that he's extending to you? Let's pray. God, we stand before you, and um, as we talked about in class this morning, we need the docility, the surrender, the submission in our hearts to allow your Holy Spirit to come into our lives and to do the work that you need to do. Lord, I know you've begun that work in so many people in this room today. And I know that they are longing for continued transformation. So I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would give it to them. That in the days to come, of the people who sit in these pews here today and their quiet time with you would be overwhelmed by a sense of your love and your power and your desire to grow them. I pray, Lord, that there would be new intimacy. And for people who are here today with wounds that need to be healed, emotional wounds from the past, I pray for your healing. I pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon them in love and that there would be change, transformation, that grief would turn into joy, that anxiety would turn into peace, that sadness would turn into glorious rejoicing. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus, who paid the price for us that we might be called children of God. Amen.